Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by David McCraw, the Deputy General Counsel at the New York Times and author of a fantastic book from 2019, Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. During his almost two decades working for the New York Times, he has been and continues to be the Times' principal legal advisor on issues like WikiLeaks and the Snowden disclosures and many other stories, including, for instance, former President Trump's tax returns and the secret fortunes of China's political elite. Welcome, David. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Jessica. So, before we talk about your book, I'd like to talk a little bit about your day job. I'm not sure that a lot of people know what a deputy general counsel for a major newspaper does. And so I am fairly certain that you don't have a quote unquote typical day, but could you walk us through, for instance, what are some of the big legal issues you've confronted in the last two weeks or month that might particularly connect with listeners so they understand what you do? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I, I was talking to my law school class about this the other night, just trying to explain how this works. But the way I think about it is this, is that, that my role is to help our journalists get their stories into print, whether that's online or in the newspaper. That means reviewing stories that may raise libel concerns, that may be responding to, to letters from uh, people who are threatening legal action against us. And at the other side is helping them get information because they're not going to have stories if they don't have the information for it. So we spend a lot of time working on freedom of information requests, working directly with uh, agencies to get documents and then, if necessary, suing agencies. And then the the other piece of my job is that uh, for reasons that or historical at the New York Times, I sit on top of the international security pyramid. So people who work for me are making sure that our journalists are safe when they are covering conflicts or uh, pandemics or anything else out in the world. Um, And that is an important part of, again, making sure that our people are where they need to be so that we can report to the world on that. I'm fortunate that I have a a team of uh, four other lawyers who work with me on these things, and we do our best to keep the information flowing. So it sounds like your job is both defensive and offensive in a way, in the sense of protecting uh, reporters, protecting the Times from suits like, for instance, for libel, which uh, for everybody listening, think about defamation, um, and then also offensive in the sense of using the law to help members of the press do their job and hold officials and others accountable. Um, that's ex- that's exactly right. Uh, and, and I mean, on that last part, I think is sometimes overlooked. I think that people assume that we're in the business of reading stories uh, and then fending off letters and lawsuits. And while reading stories is an important part of what we do, it's it's it, it is not as if we read every story that comes down that's going to be appearing in the New York Times. Not even close. But the the, the offensive part of it is exactly right. Um, we are currently. Uh, writing a brief for the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in a case where Indian Health Services, uh, which provides um, health facilities for for Native Americans, um, wrote a a report that uh, detailed how 
a doctor had engaged in sexual abuse of children for years, had gone undetected, been allowed to continue. The government says that report should be kept secret. We think not. We think that's the kind of report that citizens should have access to. So A, they can understand what happened and B, they can make decisions about how are we going to change things so it doesn't happen again in the future. How much of your time is spent on that more kind of offensive, meaning the more proactive bucket where you're not thinking, how am I going to make sure that our reporters stay out of trouble? How am I going to make sure that the New York Times doesn't end up defending a meritorious lawsuit? But how much of it is spent on how am I going to use the law to ensure that reporters can do their job, make the government turn over information when they need to turn over information? Is more of it in that kind of second bucket, that proactive bucket? It has been. It has been. Um, what happened during my time at the New York Times, and I've been there since uh, uh, 2002, is that libel cases largely dissipated that we got fewer and fewer libel cases over time. That's a reflection, as, as you know, Jessica, of just how strong laws are in this country protecting freedom of the press. And so we pivoted um, about 10 years ago and decided to really focus on helping reporters get information because we were concerned about the growth of government secrecy. And we thought the only way to fight that was to push back in the courts and to take on the agencies directly. Now, What's happened over the last four years, and I don't think this is going to surprise you or your listeners, is that there has been a resurgence of libel cases, many of them brought by uh, people with political agendas, uh, people who align with uh, uh, President Trump or conservatives and have, as, as you're well aware, uh, issues generally with the New York Times. Those issues have sometimes been uh, uh brought forward against us in libel suits by people who did not like the way we portrayed them. So we were spending more time uh, than we have in the past 10 years on libel, um, working through those. I think we're still going to win. The law is still strong, but it does take time. Uh, David, that the use of your word having issues with, it seems like issues is doing a lot of work there, but we'll, <laughs> we'll return to that in a moment. And Right now, could you explain for the listeners who aren't lawyers, what is a libel suit? And maybe what's one of the biggest libel suits you've seen come across your desk that maybe listeners have heard about over the last two to four years? As long as they promise not to sue the New York Times once I tell them what's involved. That's, that's the only deal here. So uh, a libel suit, quite simply, is a, a suit brought by a citizen, a corporation, partnership, whomever, who feel that factual statements have been made about them, that those factual statements are inaccurate, and that those factual statements in error injured their reputation. That, that in essence, is, is the nature of a libel suit. If we hurt your feelings, if we stated opinions that were caustic, that's not a, that, that's not a proper basis for a libel suit. It has to be a false factual statement, and it has to hurt reputation. Um, there are other requirements, as you know, that uh, essentially create barriers to, to many libel suits. Um, but probably the libel suit that we've had that has gained the most attention in, in the recent time period is one brought by Sarah Palin, the former governor of Alaska and the former vice president candidate, um, who has sued us over a uh, editorial we ran 
which mentioned her in passing. Um, and um, that suit is due to go to trial uh, sometime in the third quarter of this year. Can you tell us a little bit more about what her allegations are? I mean, I know most of this is public, but could you remind yeah. the listeners? Um, you said she was mentioned in passing. And the reason I am surprised is only that very few suits actually end up going to trial. So can you remind us a little bit, a quick refresher on this sure. uh, this particular one? Yeah. So uh, you, you'll recall that, that Republican congressmen were shot while practicing for a baseball game four years ago. And in the aftermath of that shooting, we ran an editorial about the, the culture of provocation that made political violence more likely. That as we talked in bellicose ways to each other, as we uh, sunk into partisanship, if you will, that um, it became easier to understand why political violence erupted. In, in the course of that editorial, we mentioned uh, a fairly well-known incident, um, which is that um, Congresswoman uh, Gabby Giffords was, was shot and people with her were killed during a, an event in Arizona. Sarah Palin comes into this because uh, Sarah Palin's political action committee had uh, circulated a, an advertisement, a piece of promotional literature, um, which had various congressional districts under what appeared to be um, crosshairs of a scope, saying that their districts were targeted. One of those was the district of Gabrielle Giffords. There's no proof at this point that ad prompted the shooter to um, unleash the violent attack on Congresswoman Giffords and, and her colleagues. And we were trying to make the point that provocation was in the air culturally in politics these days, crosshairs, using gun metaphors, using war metaphors. And Governor Palin has claimed in her suit that the language we used implied that she had been responsible for the shooting. And that's really what it comes down to is, is, is whether that language, in fact, implied that. And if it did, did we act with reckless disregard for the truth? That, as you know, is the standard that a public figure or a public official has to meet, that in publishing a story, if we got it wrong, did we act with reckless disregard of the truth? Coming from a little case called New York Times versus Sullivan. I've heard uh, yes. of that one. I, I suspected that you might have. Well, let's move on now to a question that, or a topic that is, I think, so much a part of your book and so much in the news, which is President Trump in the press and what has happened to our faith in the press as a result. But first, I want to start with what was your first professional encounter with President Trump? It seems from the book like he has a bit of a pattern of you publish, not you, but the New York Times publishes an article. He doesn't like the article. Not that it's untrue. He just doesn't like it. There's a lot of threats. And then nothing really comes as a result of it. It sounds like your first encounter with President Trump professionally was long before he was president. Yeah. As you know, President Trump, when he was real estate developer, Trump was a man about town in Manhattan, in New York, a big presence, a celebrity. And 
we would write about his real estate dealings. We would write about his hosting of The uh, Apprentice. And inevitably, we would make him unhappy. And I would begin hearing from his lawyers. But the earlier suits, Jessica, not the earlier suits, we weren't sued. The, the earlier complaints um, were, were really about our discussion of his wealth. How wealthy was he? What did he own? What did he not own? What did he claim to own? That tended to be the, the focus of those stories. It was um, um, uh, a sore point with him when we suggested that he wasn't as rich as he appeared to be or he didn't own what he claimed to own. Um, as one of his lawyers once told me that it was fair game to talk about his hair, but he was deeply sensitive about his money. And you have a situation where it's not the typical case that the lawyer, the newspaper's lawyer, goes viral. But I remember reading about this, and I remember as a lawyer being, frankly, proud of this moment. Um, the Times published a report about two women who said that Trump had inappropriately touched them. And uh, Trump's lawyers demanded a retraction. And you responded in, again, a letter that saw the light of day more than just a few times. And I'm just going to briefly quote from that. Uh, the letter says, the essence of a libel claim, of course, is the protection of one's reputation. Mr. Trump has bragged about his non-consensual sexual touching of women. He has bragged about intruding on beauty contestants in their dressing rooms. He has acquiesced to a radio host request to discuss Mr. Trump's own daughter as, quote, a piece of ass. Skipping one sentence, the letter concludes in this paragraph, nothing in our article has had the slightest effect on the reputation that Mr. Trump, through his own words and actions, has already created for himself. What, what were you thinking when you drafted that letter? Did you think this might go viral? Did you think I should tone this down? Did you think, actually, I should be stronger? Can you pull back the curtain for a minute on the writing of that letter? Well, I actually thought that I had a very important meeting about patent and a patent case that I had to get to and I needed to write fast. Um, but I never anticipated that, that it would have the sort of resonance uh, that, that it had with, with many, many people. Um, the, the Trump campaign had released a, a letter complaining about the story to, um, to the world that was on the internet. So I knew that uh, at the times, just because this is, is the way things get done, is that a public letter from the Trump campaign needed to be met with a public response from us. And uh, in thinking about it, I, I wanted to write a letter that sort of strongly said that we believe we have done the right thing here, that this story is a story that the American public should see. And at the same time, I wanted to make legal points that <laughs> suggested to the extent they were serious about suing us, that we had defenses that we intended to advance in the event of a suit and that we felt confident that we would win. Um, the last line of the letter, which um, in, in essentially invites the suit to be brought, uh, was probably stronger than I would normally put. Um, but I was aware that, um, I, that if it was going to go public, as it was, that I wanted to make sure that we did not sound scared, that we did not sound concerned, and that we were standing behind our reporters. Uh, you did not sound scared or concerned in any way. And 
I think I speak for a lot of law professors when I say we discussed that letter, uh, maybe it was the next day or a few days later in class. And it, isn't it always the case that uh, one of the things that you're known best for is the thing that you have to write or say very quickly because there is a big, you know, fill in the blank patent issue or other issue that you're trying to get to. Again, for our listeners, we're talking with David McCraw. He's the Deputy General Counsel of the New York Times and the author of a fantastic book, The Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Now, how often, this is something I'm really asking for my law students because I teach a class called Privacy in the Media. So how often is the advice, you know what? I could defend that in court, but do we want to go all the way up to that line? Or is it just members of the press or reporters? You do whatever you need to do, and I'm just here to make sure that we can walk into court with our head held high and defend against it. Or put another way, you know, is the advice often, let's not get into a situation where we have to defend this. Excellent question. And, and the answer is never the latter. Um, I, we want to let our editors make editorial judgments and our reporters to make those judgments about what needs to be covered. Once they have made that decision, our role is to uh, do everything we can to make sure that uh, we have are, have reduced the risk of a libel suit. We can't stop people from suing. People want to sue, they're going to sue. But we want to make sure that we've done everything to give ourselves the strongest hand in that. The good thing is, it's not in conflict. That the thing that journalists want to do, get the story right, is the most important thing. The most important thing we can do as lawyers is to assist them in that, to push them on that. Because if, if the story is right, I am really confident that a judge or a jury is going to get it right and find in our favor. You, you mentioned earlier, and we talked a little bit about actual malice, which is the ultimate defense where the argument is that uh, we got something wrong, but we didn't do so intentionally. We didn't know it was false when we published it. That's sort of the heart of, of actual malice. Important defense. We rely on it from time to time in court, but we do not rely on it when we're looking at stories before publication. It's not enough that the reporter thinks it's right. We want to make sure that we've got it right, and then we're willing to stand behind whatever gets published. Now, here's a question I have. When I read this in the book, to me as a lawyer, this was just an absolute gut punch. And I think this is the last big question I have before we wrap up with our supposedly, hopefully fun last three questions about you. Uh, you said the law can only do so much. It can give the press the freedom to matter, but it can't make the press matter. And it that is so true and such an important statement that the law can really provide, I think, a floor of protection but not everything that we need. You say it doesn't matter how much freedom the press has in a society if the press is not believed. A distrusted press is little different from a shackled press. And there's a warning here. And I know that this book was written in a different time, even though it was only two years ago. 
Um, it was written during the Trump administration. But do you feel that we're in a crisis right now when it comes to faith in the press? Yes. Um, I, I think if you look at the polls, you have to conclude that. But the last time I did a, a serious look at the polls, I saw, there was one that um, had 60% of the population saying they had not much trust or no trust whatsoever in the press. And that's worrisome. Um, the power of the press is that it provides facts to people and they can act upon them. And if people don't trust those facts, then our power to call attention to wrongdoing, to call attention to corruption, to call attention to things that need to be fixed has essentially been dissipated. But I think, Jessica, you have to look at it at a much broader and I think more worrisome problem. And that is the degree to which the flow of disinformation the constant repetition of the idea of fake news, the turning away of people from reliable sources, all those things have contributed to what some people talk about as the post-truth world, where people believe what they want to believe, they disregard evidence that doesn't fit their own biases, and in some cases, I think they just turn off and turn away. And it's very hard to have a functioning democracy if people are unwilling to face the truth, even the hard truth that they disagree with, or they simply have privatized their lives and are not going to be civilly engaged. That's not a good place for us to be. Are there things that you would like, if you had a magic wand, to say, here are some ways that I would like to restore faith in the press? And maybe I'll I'll wrap in a I lied, and maybe I'll wrap in a true final question here, which is the press is perceived as liberal, and you have a pretty good answer to that. Can we trust? Is the press, in fact, liberal-leaning? Can we trust them? What should we know? You've spent almost 20 years working with reporters. When I get this question, I, I distinguish between what gets covered and how it gets covered. And when reporting is done right, it is covered fairly. A reporter doing the right thing, essentially reports against her reporting. She asks hard questions about what she believed going in. She asks hard questions about the conclusions she's drawing. And only if she cannot disprove what she's about to say does she go to print. That is the check on one's own biases, one's own um, assumptions about the world that needs to happen. As I say in, in the book, there is a liberal turn that shows up, I think, more in the stories that get chosen. But this isn't something, the stories, stories that get chosen to, to be pursued. I don't think this is, is a surprising or a particularly nefarious thing. People go into journalism because they want to be people who change the world. They want to be people who write important stories and make America better or make the world better. And as a consequence, People going to journalism are not there to preserve the status quo. They don't think the rich should get richer. <laughs> they don't think the polluters should be allowed to pollute more. And so there is a natural turn that they are sympathetic to the little guy. They're sympathetic to people who haven't gotten a fair break in society. And those stories are stories that get pursued. There are other stories that need to be done. And good editors make sure that the window is, is open 
that this, the scope is is greater than that. And we're writing about people in, in various walks of life and various stations in life. But going in, a lot of journalists are interested in, through factual reporting, helping make things better. David McCraw, author of The Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Here is our lightning round of three questions because we've learned a lot from you and we want to learn a little bit more about you. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I'd love to sit down with uh, Barack Obama. Um, I, he, he, of course, was uh, an Illinois senator, and I'm a, a, a person who grew up in Illinois. Um, and I'm not sure I've ever really understood the full arc of his life, and uh, it would be interesting to hear that story. Staying on the uh, food theme, you're going to be stranded on a desert island, and you can bring one meal. What is it? I eat a lot of oatmeal. Doesn't that sound awful? But awful, <laughs> I, I, awful, <laughs> and absolutely the wrong answer. Uh, it, it's sustaining, but um, I, I, I think that if if you were uh, uh, going for the, the things that are going to bring pleasure, I would hope that I had stopped by a Chinese restaurant on the way over to the island. You have done pretty well for yourself. So, to all the law students out there, you, it might be time to stock up on oatmeal. Um, last. Question, you get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? I would like to make people nicer. I, I would like to have a more civil world. I would like to be able to get people to uh, get off each other's backs and uh, and listen, hear each other out. Um, at the end of the hour, it's probably going to be completely chaos, but <laughs> it would be a nice hour to have us uh, try to find common ground as opposed to find the ways that make us different. You mean not make fun of people for their choice of, for instance, wanting to eat oatmeal? Type of nicer <laughs> world, I, I so deserve that. That that goes in the category of even during the, the the hour of niceness, you're allowed to say that. I wholeheartedly agree that I was completely correct. David McCraw, author of The Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you for having me. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you to the listeners for your continued support. We love having these conversations with you, and we wish you a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.